0: If the noise and crowds on Bali start to make it feel like paradise lost, travel writer Dave Seminara says you're just a short flight away from the real thing. He found the quiet of the neighboring Gili Islands to be the relaxing kind of tropical getaway he was looking for.
1: All three of these islands, they're small enough that you can ride your bike around them in about an hour, and I did that. I actually rode my bike around the circumference of all three islands. And while you're halfway around the world in Indonesia, you're also just a few hours by air from Australia...
0: David Willett returns with more recommendations for deciding what to visit in his country any time of
2: year. I would really recommend going to Australia and doing what you have to do in the cities and then getting out, because it's outside the cities that I think you see the real Australia, the Australia that, that visitors from the United States expect to see. And we'll open the phone lines to hear from our listeners about
0: their favorite travel experiences. Tell us about the trip you'll never forget. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. A tour guide from New South Wales helps narrow down what you should see in Australia any time of year. And listeners share some of their most memorable trips that's coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Let's start by exploring a trio of tropical islands in Indonesia, a place where Aussie backpackers, scuba divers, and South Sea adventurers have found paradise. The -the out-of-the-way, laid-back Gilly Islands call themselves the turtle capital of the world with no cars, no motorbikes, and no worries. When Dave Seminara took his family to Bali, they found the streets were too crowded to let their young boys safely wander on their own. So, they headed for the nearby, motor-free Gili Islands instead. Dave's here to tell us about it. Dave, thanks for joining us.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Rick. So, describe
0: the Gili Islands. A lot of us know Bali. Exactly where are the Gili Islands, and uh, how do you get there?
1: Yeah, that's the great thing about the Gili Islands, is that it's easy to get a pretty cheap flight to Bali, And then from Bali, it's relatively easy to escape to these Gili Islands, which there's several of them. The word Gili means small island in Indonesian, but the three main ones, Gili Air, Gili Mino, and Gili Chawangan, are about a two to three hour ferry ride east of the island of Bali. So you go by bus or something to the
0: little port and you hop on a boat and it's shuttling the travelers back and forth?
1: That's if you don't mind getting potentially seasick. If you, People uh, who don't like long boat rides, Rick, can also take a short flight okay. and then a 15-minute boat ride instead if you prefer to do that.
0: I mentioned the religious cultural kind of background. Bali is famously Hindu. Kili
1: Islands happen to be a little uh, enclave of Muslim culture. How did that impact your experience? I wouldn't say it impacts the visitor, you know, in a huge way. Obviously, Bali, what's really distinctive about Bali is the really interesting, unique, ceremonial Hindu culture. And, you know, in the Gili Islands, uh, these are Muslim islands. However, they're very popular with Europeans, and you see people in bikinis, and there's beach bars all over the place serving alcohol and pork and things that would be forbidden in a strict Muslim country. So I think if you are there as a typical traveler— the fact that these islands are Muslim would not you know, necessarily impact you in any way. But I was actually interested to meet local people, and I wanted to meet the chief of the three islands and to ask him whether there was any tension between you know, these bikini-clad uh, beachgoers and partiers and the local people. So I made an effort to actually sort of get to know local people mm. and to find out about the local sensibilities. But if you're there it's just as an ordinary tourist looking for some fun on the beach, it wouldn't impact you really at all. You were traveling with your son, right? Two sons, yes. Two sons. I understand you took them actually to the school and, and you had a classroom full right. the kids that you talked to. What was that like a, as a parent, introducing your kids to such a different culture? There were six and eight at the time. We met a teacher actually on the beach who was selling necklaces. And whenever I'm in a very touristy sort of place, I'm always interested in sort of the tension and interplay between traditional occupations and people working in the tourist trade. So, I think what happens in economies like these, Rick, I'm sure you've seen this, is that all of a sudden you can make more money selling necklaces on the beach to tourists or renting out your home than you could be being a teacher or a Mm -hmm. policeman or a traditional occupation. Hmm. So when we met this teacher on the beach who was selling necklaces, I was really curious, actually, to know a little bit more about him and how he sort of balanced those two occupations. And when he said, why don't you guys come visit us at our school? I tried to rope both of my sons into going (laughs) with me, but I was only able to convince one of them. So myself and my older son one morning, our last morning there, went to visit his school, and we were invited to speak to three or four different classrooms full of children who asked us questions about America. Did they speak English, or was it all translated by the teacher? They spoke very, very little English, so most of it was translated uh, by the teachers. Were the girls and the boys mixed up? Were the girls wearing scarves? Yes. This was another surprising thing. I asked when we met the teacher on the beach, I asked him whether the girls in the school uh, wear the hijab and a headscarf and the Muslim attire. And he said, only a couple of them was his answer when we met him on the beach. But actually, when we got to the school, they were all uniformly uh, wearing, you know, sort of conservative uh, Muslim attire with headscarves and whatnot. And I I found it interesting because I thought, I think he was trying to tell us what we wanted to hear, Mm -hmm. and he wanted to portray the island as a very liberal and tolerant place. And I think he Mm -hmm. projected onto me that I might think something negative about them if they were, Mm -hmm. you know, dressed conservatively, which, of course, I wouldn't. Dave, you're a great traveler because you're sharing this with your child, and also you're realizing
0: 90% of the tourists just hang out on the beach and love the, the cheap beer, but a real traveler can venture inland a little bit and actually have an experience that's as real as you ventured into a corner of Indonesia that had no tourism. It's not a matter of going to an untouristy place, it's finding the untouristy dimension of the famous place, I think.
1: It is, and you know, what we found too was the difficulty of what happens when tourism dominates an economy like this island because this gentleman, we met the teacher, he was very honest with us that he makes twice as much money selling necklaces on the beach mm. as being a teacher you know, it made me wonder how can a society thrive when you have that sort of a distorted economy like that. Mm-hmm. It is somewhat concerning because, you know, tourism can bring prosperity to an island, but can also sort of distort reality a little bit, too. Yeah, Dave Seminar is telling
0: us about Indonesia's Gili Islands right now on Travel with Rick Steves. You'll find Dave's byline on the BBC travel pages, and he's published his most memorable travel encounters in his book, Bed, Breakfast, and Drunken Threats, Dispatches from the Margins of Europe. He also includes photos from the Gilly Islands in an article he wrote for the New York Times. You can find it on his website at daveseminara.com. That's spelled S-E-M-I-N-A-R-A. You mentioned that there's three islands. You stayed on Gilly Air, which has a comfortable, nice beachfront uh, hotel and restaurant and so on, and then you can easily make day trips to the other islands. Uh, you mentioned right. Gili Meno is sort of sleepy and tranquil, mm-hmm. and then Gili Trawangan is sort of a backpacker's haven. Talk about yes. the three islands a little bit. Talk about the backpacker haven. What was that like?
1: Gili T, Gili Trawangan, the backpacker haven? Rick, I'm 44 years old, but if I was 21 again, I would go to Gili T for sure. Mm-hmm. Pulsing discos, all kinds of hostels, all three of these islands, they're, they're small enough, Rick, that you can ride your bike around them in about an hour. And I did that. I actually rode my bike around the circumference of all three islands. I understand there's no mortar traffic on these islands. It's just Correct, bikes. which is one of the great pleasures wow, of the Gili cool. Islands, Rick. Because anyone who's been to Bali knows that the scooters are a scourge. Yes. Uh, they ride up on the sidewalks. Mm. And especially when you're traveling with young children like myself, I can't tell you how many times we were walking on sidewalks in Bali. And, oh, my gosh, all of a sudden, here comes a scooter right at you. Yeah. And my, so, this my, is my kids
0: loved Gilly Tea because they're both in their 20s and it was just like sure. utopia for anybody looking
1: for a beach party. Talk about Gilly Meno. Yeah, Gilly Menno is much more of a sleepy island. It's very quiet, beautiful white sand beaches. Again, very small. You can ride around it in one hour. No discos, no loud music, nothing like that. The beach. There are a couple of beach bars, but very mellow ones, not party scene at all. However... When we were there, we did find out that David Hasselhoff of Baywatch fame is an investor in a development there hmm. that claims that they're developing on this Baywatch beach, which I visited, and which didn't seem like a Baywatch beach to me at all, but Gilly Mayno might be changing in the next few years if indeed this, so this development takes off. So it on. could
0: become a Baywatch beach with a, a little bit of investment and development. And then it sounds like Gilly Air was the place you were glad you were making your home base.
1: Gili Air I think is a is a happy medium of the three not too sleepy but not too crazy great place for families you know there's enough going on in terms of you know selection of restaurants and selection of accommodation and um nice beaches that I found it to be a sort of a good compromise of the three islands and I should mention too there are a couple of other Gili islands too that do not have regular ferry service. So when I say there's three Gilly Islands, actually there's more than that. Yeah. But what I mean is there's three that have daily ferry service to them. Right. There are other ones that are just starting to be developed. And you know, within a year or two, Rick, there could be five or six that are developed. I would think it's nice to get off the beaten path, but you can get two off the beaten
0: path when it comes to a tourist looking for a comfortable right. accommodations and so on. You wrote about the fun your, your son had with the local currency, the rupiah.
1: Yes. He was calling them root beers. And you know, <laughs> root at beers. the time that we at the time we were there it was I believe thirteen thousand what he was calling root beers to the dollar. So first he was so tickled by this we'd say, I'm gonna give you ten thousand root beers and you'd hand him a ten thousand note and he thought he was rich, but ten then, thousand you know, 10, root beers. But then when he realized that it cost like fifty thousand root beers to get things that he wanted, then the ten thousand root beers w- weren't as exciting anymore. What a fascinating thing for a young mind to be exposed to it. You're right. must have been fun for them
0: to sort through that.
1: They love that, and they also like the um, what's called the Sidomo rides there. So they do not have uh, vehicles there or motorized transport, Rick, but you can take these horse carts around the island, which is a lot of fun. And especially if you have luggage, like when you arrive with a boat, and of course there's no taxis, and if you don't want to lug your suitcase through the sand, you can take these Sidomos, which are these brightly painted horse carts. My boys loved riding around on the Sodomos. That's a fun way to get around the island. So you're a rich guy from far away America with your two kids, and you know, you're know you just uh, overwhelmed
0: by all the challenges, and there's a guy with a cart there. Was he aggressive, or could you just hop in and he
1: would no, charge you reasonably? No, 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 Rick, I will tell you, the, these islands are the opposite of aggressive. <laughs> I mean, if you could describe these are sleepy, quiet, low-key places Nobody is the least bit aggressive on an island like Gilear. And not only that, they have sort of a these Sodomo guys. They're yeah. very smart. They have like a monopoly and a fixed price. And the price is exactly what they say it is, no matter whether you want to go 50 feet or around the entire island. And there's no bargaining, no haggling, and they don't care. They just sit there, so they don't bother you. They That's don't even come up to and, you. And was yeah. it quite inexpensive? No. Actually, everything <laughs> on the island is cheap, Rick everything you can have seafood on the beach for peanuts everything is cheap except for these sedomos these guys are very very smart okay. and it's actually not that cheap to ride the sedomos but everything else is cheap but considering you wrote
0: about the sinister humidity and the thick sand it sounds like a little bit of help with a cart might be appreciated
1: yeah well and i'm from buffalo too rick so i'm i'm a buffalo new york boy who's not used to 95 <laughs> degrees and humidity so 95 degrees and humidity
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Dave Seminar. We're talking about Bali, the Gili Islands. Dave's book is Bed, Breakfast, and Drunken Threats, where he shares dispatches on his travels to offbeat places. Dave, let's close with just a favorite memory, a favorite moment from your time in the Gili Islands, just a couple hours by ferry away from Bali.
1: Well, a favorite memory is, I think on the you know, in the last morning there, they have what are called fat tire bikes, which are these bikes, it's basically a mountain bike, but with much fatter tires, and it's very good for riding around in the sand there. And uh, on the last day there, what I wanted to do was take one more spin around the entire circumference of the island of Gilly Air, but not fast and not getting all sweaty, but stopping at all of the beach bars. So... You can do this, you can make a complete circuit of the island in one hour if you're riding straight through, but you'll finish and be all sweaty. Instead, what I did was I probably stopped five or ten times and at each each stop I had a drink, and you start to feel nicer and nicer, and by the time you've made the complete circuit, you feel fantastic. And if you fall off your
0: fat, tired bike, you're just going to land in some beautiful Indonesian sand. Correct. All right. Dave, thanks a lot for giving us a better understanding of what um, I think is worth remembering if we're going to be traveling to Indonesia. Check out the Gili Islands.
1: It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show, Rick. We'll check in with listeners for tales of
0: your own travel memories in just a bit at 877-333-RICK or by email. We're at radio at ricksteves.com. But first, we get insider advice for exploring the best of Australia next on Travel with Rick Steves. When planning a visit to a country the size of a continent, a little insider advice is a good idea. For natural wonder you'll only find in Australia, it's a long way to go from the wilds of Tasmania to the Great Barrier Reef. And Australia also has great cities and history you don't want to overlook. So, where do you start? Tour guide David Willett joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us what an Aussie is most proud to show off about his country any time of year. David, good to have you back.
2: Pleasure, Rick. Glad to be here.
0: I mentioned uh, my my notion would be uh, sort of the, the way to connect with traditional Australia would be to, to get into the small towns and out into the natural environs. Does that make sense to you for a tourist or what would you recommend?
2: I would really recommend going to Australia and doing what you have to do in the cities and then getting out because it's outside the cities that I think you see the real Australia, the Australia that visitors from the United States expect to see.
0: Okay, so go to Sydney and see the Opera House and do what you have to do but then get a rental car and head for the hills.
2: Yes. All right, well, head for the coast.
0: Head for the coast. And if you had, if you had a checklist of, say, three or four, uh, you know, natural experiences in Australia, I know that's a tough question, but what would you have people really seriously consider?
2: The trouble with Australia is it has so many natural attractions. It's a matter, yeah. really, of, of when you go as to what you do, because we have every single climate zone there. That's something I think a lot of Americans uh, forget, that you've got From the tropics to what we would consider the far north. Yeah, cold-temperate to tropical. Yeah. The full range. Well, talk about the Great Barrier Reef. The Great Barrier Reef, I think if you're going to go to the Great Barrier Reef, you need to go fairly soon because the Great Barrier Reef is not as well as it was. It's being degraded by silt from uh, the rivers that pour into the, the Great Barrier Reef area and by shipping and by something called the crown-of-thorn starfish, which they have yet to work out why it is there in such plague proportions, eating the coral.
0: So there's a swarm of starfish eating up the greatest yes. uh, organic uh,
2: mass on the planet. Yes, they're, they're still puzzled as to what brought them there. Well, these starfish are probably just giddy with all that yeah. food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's possible. Jeez. But uh, well, That's too bad. I mean, the thing about the, the Great Barrier Reef that people don't appreciate is that it is really attraction in our winter, which is our dry season. Right. So in the dry season, you don't have the coastal rivers pouring silt into the reef area. And then you have better visibility. So you have way better visibility. You can go there in the Australian wet season and see nothing, just silt. When is the wet season again? The wet season really starts, it varies from year to year, let's say from late November through till March. But that's the summer, right? So you're you're that's of summer. it's
0: like monsoon time. Yes, it
2: is northern monsoon. That's exactly what it is. Okay,
0: so we have to remember that. This is south of the equator, so Christmas, Santa Claus wears short pants.
2: Santa Claus goes to the beach.
0: David Willett lives in the countryside of New South Wales, and he specializes in leading tours of the history and sites of Greece and Albania. He's joining us right now on Travel with Rick Steves for advice for getting to know the real Australia, his homeland. Our phone number is 877 333 7425, and by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. And we have an email from Carolyn Boston. And Carolyn writes While working in Sydney a few years ago, I had the great pleasure of visiting with the Aboriginal people of Redfern. They were warm and friendly to me, and I'm an African American, and they shared much with me about their hardships and historical turmoil with white Australians. How's the Aboriginal community doing now in Redfern? Is their economic outlook better now than it was a few years ago?
2: Sadly, it is uh, still something of a blot, although it is nothing like as bad as it was when Carroll was there 25 years ago. A lot of money has been poured into that area in an attempt to rejuvenate it, revive Redfern. But it remains an underprivileged area. It remains an area with extremely high unemployment, certainly by Australian standards, relatively low education. The main way out of, uh, some would say, the ghetto is through sport. Hmm. And uh, that, that's the big thing in Redford. A lot of emphasis on, on rugby league. There's always issues there with uh, what is seen as insensitive policing, these yeah. kind of issues. it's they very
0: out. parallel to the United States. I think it no? is very, very similar. Well, we have our uh, struggling black communities in big cities. You've got struggling aboriginal
2: communities yes, in and, big cities. And, uh, well all around Australia.
0: And Chris is calling in from El Cajon in California. Chris, thanks for your call.
3: Oh, glad to get on and have a chance to uh, hear some of the shared wisdom here.
0: Yeah. Do you have a comment or a question for David?
3: Yeah, I I am going to um, Tasmania next fall with my wife. We've got uh, probably about a week to visit there, and we wanted to know what some of the beautiful sights we could see. We're not aggressive hikers, but we like to take moderate hikes, you know, that take a few hours and see some of the scenery.
0: Now, Tasmania, that's the, the big island south of Australia, landmass, right? Right. Where, so, where are you going down there, Chris?
3: I'm actually an Australian citizen. I was born in the U.S., but my mother's from there, and I've been in Australia a number of times, but I've never been to Tasmania, and I have a, a second cousin that lives there, so I'd like to visit him, and I'd also like to, to visit the island because I've heard it's a really beautiful place.
0: David, what's your take on Tasmania?
2: I think it's a beautiful place, too, and I'm very lucky to have a good friend from Tasmania, and I've been there quite a number of times, and... The friend actually came from Bernie up in the north coast, and our focus was traveling down the west coast, which is some of the wildest country, uh, I think, on this planet, and least inhabited, but it makes it hard to get to. The only way of getting there was by boat. Wow. The,
0: the west coast of Tasmania? The west coast
2: of Tasmania. How wild was it? What did it feel like to be there? Well, everything is blown flat. It's what you call horizontal shrub, because of the, the, strong, the, roaring, so 40s, the roaring 40s prevailing winds. Oh, my goodness. So nothing grows straight. It all grows at about there a 60-degree angle. <laughs> <laughs> very few, very few. If they are there, they're the, bent over. The, the, uh, the, the, the population's mainly on the uh, on the East Coast. So it's literally, the, the, literally yeah. blowing over to the yeah, East Coast. Absolutely, just, just about literally, yes. Yeah. But there's a, a famous national park in the center of Tasmania called Cradle Lake. Uh-huh.
0: Cradle and Lake.
2: Cradle Lake, and it's uh, a particularly beautiful spot. It's an area you can only really enjoy during our summer when you say the fall I don't know whether you're talking about the American fall or, or our fall.
3: Well, we're going to be over there in October.
2: In October. October or, or
3: late September, actually.
2: Okay, look, you should be okay uh, then. I think it's probably a little bit better, let's say, in, in November. But it should be okay then. You could still have snow in in uh, at Cradle Lake. David, when you think about Tasmania, is it a, a distinct culture? Is there some kind of... a
0: A local pride that almost puts it at odds with the Australian mainstream? Or how
2: does Tasmania relate to this massive rest of Australia? Well, Tasmania certainly sees itself as a a very little cousin. And there's a a certain resentment to much of Australia, and that resentment dates back to the staging of the Olympics in Sydney when uh, Tasmania went missing from the map. Why did it go missing from the map? Well, because it's an island, and it was hard to fit it all together.
0: So it, was just a, so, uh, a, it wasn't a pointed uh, political decision. It was just a, a little practical thing. We, we don't have a room
2: for a little splotch in the middle of the wall. That was kind of how it was but approached, But the Tasmanians yes. took it personally? Oh, absolutely. Really? Well, because they're always perceiving slight from the big brothers on the mainland. But uh, I think Tasmania has a very different old-fashioned charm that I think people coming from Sydney love to escape there because it's how life was 30 years ago. Okay. The pace is the pace is decidedly slower. I think Tasmania really is like traveling uh, to a time warp. If if you love the fifties, Tasmania is the place for you. <laughs> so if you want, sounds
0: to, really uh, interesting. Time warp Australia, David. Just in general, what are some ideas? You know, when when you take a road trip in America, you're looking for an old diner, you know, and you're looking for a, a town with a wide road and a saloon or something like that. You know, a colorful pub and eccentric
2: characters. Where do you find a, a time warp in Australia? I think the place where you're most likely to find time warps it is Tasmania because I think much of Australia these days is, is very modern, and Australians are very well-traveled. We have a higher percentage of passport ownership than anyone else in the world. so You guys are famous for that. What do you call it? Uh, the, can the we go walkabout? The walkabout. What is That's, a walkabout? Well, a walkabout is actually something that Aborigines do, but it's become part of uh, our slang, too. To so you do a global walkabout? Global. You take, you a, a global walkabout. six walk- months off, and it's a walkabout. Well, Australia's a long way from anything else, so you you never travel to uh, Europe for two weeks. Do you have some understanding among your employers
0: that you can take an extended leave and come back and resume your position?
2: Certainly, in some professions, that is very much seen that way. My son's a high school teacher, teaches history, and he's just taken a year off, and that's with the full blessing of the school, who say, "Look, please go and do it. You'll come back a better person. You'll come back a more all-rounded person." And that's very much part of Australian thinking, is that we need to engage with the world rather Makes than sense. live in isolation. Makes sense.
0: Hey, Chris, thanks for your call. You're welcome. What
2: about the New England Highway? Well, the New England Highway, there are mm-hmm. two major highways that run north from Sydney, between Sydney and Brisbane. Mm-hmm. During World War II, funds were poured into the New England Highway, which runs up in the, in the ranges inland, and that was seen as being safe from Japanese attack. So that's where the money went. These days, the money is all poured into the coastal highway, which is called the Pacific Highway so maybe you'd see a little more of a time warp if you went inland absolutely I mean the attractions are, are, are very different if you want to see real rural Australia riding on the sheep's back you take the New England highway mm-hmm. I would recommend actually doing both yeah I would go up to Brisbane one way and come back down the other highway sounds
0: great this is Travel with Rick Steves
2: we're talking with David Willett about
0: Australia our phone number is 877 and Rita is calling from Pennsylvania Rita thanks for your call
4: Oh, and thank you. I'm enjoying listening to the conversation. A lot of my questions have already been answered, but I will be in Australia for about a month come April. And I have a few days in Cairns to spare. And what would you suggest other than the, the obvious?
2: You're talking about uh, what would I suggest up in Cairns? Yes. I, I used to live up in Townsville years ago, and I would spend a lot of time up in the Cairns area. My favourite thing there was not the Great Barrier Reef, which at times can be something of a circus with so many people cramming on to boat to go out there. My favourite place is an area in the hinterland behind Cairns called the Atherton Tablelands. And I spent a week years ago driving around with an old utility going to all the waterfalls.
4: Oh, terrific.
2: And I found one waterfall where you could get behind the waterfall and dive out through it into this beautiful crystal clear Crater Lake, wow!
4: I will make note of that. That sounds like a good—that's a day trip I could take out there.
2: You'd be pushing it for a day trip, really. You'd want—you want, want to do it overnight? And what's the name okay, of that place, great. David? The name of the place is the Atherton Tableland. Atherton, Atherton. Tableland—that sounds hmm. like a great tip, Rita.
4: That—that that sounds wonderful. Well, I thank you very much. Enjoy the conversation. Keep All going. right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for your call, Rita. And go, you are Bye bye.
2: Bye bye.
0: David, of course, Australia has this uh, legacy or this heritage of being a penal colony, founded by English people who didn't want to execute these prisoners, so they just sent them to the farthest corner of the planet. What's the heritage of that? What does that? How does that matter today, if at all?
2: Well, these days, the people who were uh, sent out with the uh, with the first fleet as convicts are almost a royalty, if you can trace your, your origins back to them, then you're... Uh, are, there, are there people who can trace them? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Genealogy is very popular in Australia, and the goal of everyone is to be able to trace yourself back to those first convict settlers. Because these people were not serious criminals. I mean, if you knifed someone, you swung. If you stole a loaf of bread, you went to Australia. And I think that what's happened in Australia shows that a lot of this stuff is environmental and that placed in the right environment, these people have thrived. We are not a nation of criminals. In fact, uh, that's You another... say
0: that as if you've uh, you've had to deal with this. Well, all it w- like.
2: <laughs> it's a popular misconception <laughs> and really the the reality is only a small percentage of Australia's early settlers were convicts. The vast majority were free settlers. Okay. Well, that's people don't want to believe that though. No, they much I, rather <laughs> think it was as criminals.
0: 200 years later, it's a very it's kind of a romantic yeah, thing. Yeah, it is to it is most definitely romantic. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Australia with David Willett. And, David, uh, you know, people love uh, Ayers Rock. It's got an, a new name now.
2: The correct name is uh, Uluru, and uh, Ay- Ayers Rock has been consigned to the pages of history. It's also a rock band. So is Uluru
0: worth a trip all the way out to, to that? I mean, it's, it's thousands of miles from the East Coast. It,
2: it is. It, if if you were to drive it, it would take you best part of three days. Mm-hmm. It has its own airport, mm-hmm. and if you are organized, you can easily get yourself there from Sydney relatively cheaply. Okay. Uh, But what do you see besides a big rock? I would hope you travel all that way and you can see more than this big rock. I think the the reason you should go out there is to learn about uh, Aboriginal lifestyle. And they have some really excellent tour guides there who will explain to you the importance of Uluru in the Aboriginal spirituality. And they will also show you how people uh, lived out there because it's an extremely harsh environment.
4: Mm -hmm.
2: Very hot. Very, very hot. In summer, you are looking at well over 100 degrees. It's one of those things that I think we should be doing in the, uh, in the Australian winter in the, in the cooler season, or well, certainly not at the height of our summer, not unless you like frying. So, David, uh, of
0: course, uh, historically we've thought of this giant rock in the uh, west of Australia as Ayers Rock. Now it's called Uluru. Is that indicative of a new respect for Australia's indigenous people?
2: I think that respect might be overstating it slightly. It's certainly indicative, though, of a new awareness of Aboriginal spirituality. Australia, now is very proud of uh, its Aboriginal past, particularly Aboriginal art. Aboriginal art is now respected worldwide, not just within Australia, and become highly collectible.
0: Is it realistic for a traveller who wants to gain an appreciation of Australia's Aboriginal culture to... To learn about it and experience it in something other than a,
2: a touristy cliche on stage, off of a cruise ship, for instance. The cruise ships don't go to uh, uh-huh. Uluru, which is rather a long way inland. Uh, so that is one of its saving graces. Is it, it's, it's hard to get there. Once you get there, though, it is easy to find and engage Aboriginal guys who are professionally trained and have an extremely good reputation. If you want to learn about Aboriginal lifestyle, that's the way to do it, and and you are providing valuable employment that's a very nice way to give an extra and a thoughtful dimension Mm. to your trip
0: would be to employ an aboriginal guide would you do that in what parts of Australia would that be uh, best done in
2: principally in Kakadu National Park up in northern Australia Mm. and at Uluru this is travel with Rick Steves we've been learning about Australia from our
0: Australian friend and guide David Willett and David it's fun to hear you talk about your homeland and uh, to me when I think about down under I I think of a a more intimate society, a society that has similar challenges and problems as the United States, similar heritage, but one-tenth the amount of people on the same landmass. If you think back to your childhood and, and a favorite memory from growing up in Australia that gives you a special appreciation for your country, that you might even find a little bit of that surviving today, what would it be?
2: It's most definitely sport. That's uh, every Australian... From the cradle on, play sport. We're uh, very proud of our sporting. uh, I think prowess would not be overstating it because for a a country that with a very small population, we punch way above our weight in terms of the number of medals we win. And without the intensive programs that other countries have, we're just naturally sporting. Because the uh, Australian government decided many years ago that rather than pour money into new hospitals they would put money into sporting facilities so that people were fit and healthy as a population. And uh, that is my memory, is uh, standing on cricket fields, baking in the sun, so with a bit of st- grass between my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> and when you say sport, you're talking what sports? Well, our main sport, uh, summer sport, as a team sport, is cricket, which is not understood anywhere other than uh, in, the, uh, in the England and its former, <laughs> <laughs> former right. Commonwealth. Yeah. And all, all codes of football these days, soccer is the biggest one, but we're famous for Aussie rules, which is primarily in the southern states, and rugby union and rugby league, a very small difference, but uh, hardly discernible to Americans. Probably
0: uh, put it on your checklist when you're traveling around Australia. If there's a rugby match or some kind of a football match, go to the stadium.
2: Yes, that's where you'll, you'll see Australians at play and uh, celebrating. They're not like English soccer fans. We're a little bit more civilized.
0: So it's safe to go to the yes, stadium. Very, you're, <laughs> you're, you're safe in a stadium, yes. All right. David Willett, thanks so much for a, a great look at Australia. Pleasure
2: to be here, Rick. Thank you.
0: Back to culture. 877 333 Rick is our phone number. Radio at ricksteves.com is how you reach us by email. Next, it's your turn. Tell us about a trip you took that you'll always remember as a highlight of your travels. It's Travel with Rick Steves. It's been a while since we've spent a little time with just you, our listeners, on Travel with Rick Steves. So let's check in now for your tales of unforgettable experiences. Tell us about the places you've been and the people you've met and maybe some practical tips you've picked up along the way. Brad's calling in from Portland, Oregon. Hi, Brad. Hi, Rick. Thanks for your call. Nice to
5: speak with you. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we have, with my family and I, we have two kids, my wife Trina and I, we have done 10 home exchanges over the last five years. Hmm. This summer, we spent six weeks in Europe. We spent three weeks doing a home exchange in Denmark, then traveled a little bit around Germany, and then had another week of home exchange in Paris.
0: Give us a, just an introduction. What is home exchange? How does it work?
5: You know, it is really a simple idea. You simply trade your house with another family. And in the case of our experience, we've not just traded our house. We've traded car keys. We've traded cars, kind of swapped lives, I think, wow. for, for several weeks. There are several home exchange websites. There's no money exchanged. You simply see somebody's house at the site site. You are attracted to it and then you send them a note. In Denmark this summer, the home exchange that we traded with came with its own beach house as well. So the first time we did it in 2009, we spent six weeks in two different houses in Denmark. Uh, We've done home exchanges for a weekend in Eugene, Oregon, just trading with Eugene in Portland.
0: And it's a direct uh, swap. Got, you don't go into a pool, but you actually, they take your house and you take their house. Exactly do, right. Do you actually ever meet and, and give somebody an orientation, or do you write things up?
5: You know, usually what we do is we do a Skype or FaceTime call oh, yeah. to, to the exchange. As my son Jack says, hotels don't come with a trampoline. The summer home we had in, in Scalescore on the Strand in, in Denmark had its own trampoline, and it was next door to the mayor of Copenhagen. You know, we also, we traded cars. We drove our car to the Portland airport. They left their car at the airport in in Copenhagen. We picked theirs up. They picked ours up and just drove home, so to speak.
0: You really are swapping, in a lot of ways, swapping worlds.
5: Including bicycles and car seats.
0: And neighbors.
5: That's right. Yeah, you even get in-laws. We had a (laughs) mother-in-law next to us the first time we did it, and we went to... We went to their sister's weddings. It was—it's been a really lovely experience, and we've done it now uh, about twelve times, including twice in uh, New York City, uh, in Mexico.
0: Brad, you've had Danes, French people, Mexicans into your house—people you didn't know—and after you come back home, what's it like coming back into your house? Are you a little bit wondering, okay, is everything in one piece? And what's that like?
5: You know, the the worst thing that's happened in five years of doing this is that somebody put a plate away, not totally clean. Mm-hmm. Um, we have had no, no issues, no major concerns. Well, well when you sweet. think
0: of the value of that, if you just want to get monetizing it, I mean, what a yeah. wasteful thing to leave your car and home unused and then go rent one when you can just swap it out.
5: Exactly. Yeah, I, I tried to monetize it the first trip. For six weeks, I figured it was worth about 14000 bucks.
0: Amazing. You know, how does the process work when you're thinking about, you, you talk with your family, oh, we want to go to Rio de Janeiro, or we want to go to Singapore, or we want to go to New Orleans.
5: Yeah, you can also search by people that want to come to Portland, for oh, example. Yeah. So you can do a reverse search, people yeah. interested in Oregon.
0: Because you got to sell yeah. them on your place. If, if you live in, no offense, but uh, Duluth, uh, you're going to have a tough yeah. time getting somebody from Paris.
5: Probably, especially in February. That's so correct. you could get
0: somebody from Spokane.
5: Yeah, yeah. you know, although one the, uh, the family we traded with in Mexico, that was during the winter. They were Americans who lived in Mexico. They came to see their parents who lived in Tigard, Oregon. So people have reasons to go anywhere. It's not yeah. just New York and San Francisco.
0: All right. Well, I've just uh, offended all my friends in Duluth and Spokane, so we should probably uh, talk about the wonders of those cities. But the whole world has places where you can just swap out houses and have a good time. That's
5: right we may put Duluth on our list so, uh, we're going to look into that
0: <laughs> great hey Brad thanks for your call what a what a great idea swapping houses thanks, and Rick. neighbors and cars and bikes and dishes and lives
5: that's right you get a trampoline in the mix as and well you, and as thanks a souvenir
0: so as a souvenir you get friends absolutely nice yep. alright happy travels
5: thanks Rick you too
0: and Ray's calling in from Chapel Hill in North Carolina hi Ray Hello, Rick. Thanks for calling. Do you have a travel adventure or a thrill to share with our listeners?
6: Uh, yes, I do. Uh, quite some years, several decades ago, I uh, had the spectacular experience of entering Ondanya on the uh, western coast of Norway. I'd come down from Narvik uh, via Buda in Frontheim and arrived late in the evening at the youth hostel at the edge of the town Uh, The next morning I came out, it was completely clear and a dazzling day, and I headed up the Romsdalszagen Ridge for a nine-hour hike with a 360-degree alpine panorama.
0: Ray, let's sort of set the context here. We're talking about uh, Norway on the fjord coast. You were heading for this ridge called Egen? Yes. I looked on the internet at some of those uh, pictures of that hike. What an amazing hike. Yeah. <laughs> well, it it just seems like you're walking on a ridge with as you said 360 degrees of Norwegian grandeur.
6: Exactly. Oh. <laughs> it was it was spectacular. I want to do that. I want to do direction. that. I, I've seen those as well, and those are what I remember.
0: That's what you remember. Oh, right. yeah,
6: 35 years later, 34 nice. years later.
0: Hey, Ray, that's <laughs> a good example of how you spend one good energetic day, nine hours of hiking, and 35 years later, you're still remembering it.
6: Oh, yes. <laughs> well, and not the strain of the hike, mind you. No, you just, just
0: the, the reward. One
6: morning, <laughs> and I spent half the day going up, and the other half of the day coming All down. All right.
0: I bet you slept well after that hike.
6: That's <laughs> after coming in in the fog, literally, yeah. I mean, I couldn't see my hand in front of my face for all practical purposes the night before I come through and just a clear sky has been you know, painted over the <laughs> over all the fog.
0: Ray, I saw one photograph where the uh, the fog and the clouds were just below the ridge and the ridge was like a stone road going right across the clouds up to the peak. And right, it
6: was... yeah. yeah, yeah the...
0: Amazing. Amazing. Okay, Ray, I'm going to do that myself. Thanks for your call. You're very welcome, Happy Ray. travels. Bye-bye. Bye. We're looking for your trip reports right now on Travel with Rick Steves. On our website at ricksteves.com slash radio, you can also include your email address where it says sign up for radio news. That's how we'll notify you of upcoming guest recording sessions and your next chance to join us for an open phone segment. We're at 877 and... Radio at ricksteves.com. That's our email address. Janelle in Columbia, South Carolina, emailed us and she writes Bamberg, B A M B E R G, is overlooked. It's a small town but has some great sights and is definitely a walkable town. I want to put it in a snow globe and keep it. I lived there in the 80s as a military kid and visited it just last Christmas. It has a great market and for beer drinkers, it's a real treat. Hey, Janelle, that's a very good tip, and uh, I've always, uh, you know, I've spent decades looking for the untouristy, what we call the untouristy Rothenburg, and uh, I would say the two closest things to the untouristy Rotenburg are Erfurt, E-R-F-U-R-T, and Bamberg. Of course, everybody goes to Rotenburg, It's the best-preserved medieval town in Germany, but it's inundated with tour groups, understandably, and in a case like that, you want to be out early or out late when all the tour groups are gone and enjoy the city without the, the trample of the tour crowds. But Bamberg is a beautiful town that way, and uh, I just love that image. Put it in a snow globe and keep it. Somebody told me a town was like walking into a Fabergé egg, and I thought that was a little over-descriptive, over, uh, over descriptive, a little bit over the top, but I, I got there, and I walked into the street, and I had forgotten about that, and, and I looked down the street, and I thought, you know, I feel like I've just walked into a Fabergé egg. Well, now I've got another image. I feel like we want to put this town in a snow globe and shake it. So, Janelle, thanks for your tip, and we'll keep that in mind. Bamberg, the untouristy Rotenberg. Phillip's on the line in Newark, Ohio. Philip, thanks for your call. Yes, hi. Thanks
7: very much, uh, my uh, dear mother. So one of the things that she said she always wanted to do was to be a part of the uh, Holland experience and then to actually see the tulips in that particular area. So, But we went there early enough before the actual start of the the tour to um, be there for the uh, last Queen's Day for Queen Beatrix of Mm. uh, the Netherlands and the installation of her son, Wilhelm Alexander. And in the 120-plus years, he would end up being the first king of the Netherlands. The and Netherlands uh,
0: have 120 years of queens. They haven't had a yes. king for that long. I didn't realize right. that. So they yes. call it Queen's uh, Day. Are they going to change the name to King's Day now?
7: I think they are. Yes, yes. yes. So I've and heard that, that
0: party is just crazy. I've seen it yes. the days after and the city's still cleaning up.
7: Right. The crowds were huge but uh, yeah. it, it really started like we started hearing movements around 6 a.m. Mm-hmm. and that people up and down the canals and all through the streets but then while I was walking around there was numerous like come in and party with us and those type of yeah. things. But this one was very special because representatives from all over the world actually ended up because uh, she was abdicating and then her son was taking over. There was all kind of uh, heads of state, I think Prince Charles and Camilla Parker Bowles.
0: So these big VIPs, there. these royalty from all over came there. Yes. But for the people in the street, it's just an excuse to paint your bodies and drink right. a lot and just have a wild time, isn't it?
7: Yes, yes. And uh, Boats I... were
0: filled with revelers. Right. Very much so. Very oh, much so. the city is, you know, the city is generally right. like a festival and on that day right. it's just over the top. What, yes. what day is Queen's Day? Do you remember? April 28th or 9th. So la- end of April, Queen's Day. If you want a big yeah, party, okay. it's just a great time to be in right. Amsterdam and in the future after 120 years of Queen's Days, I guess it's going to be King's Day.
7: Yes, and that's um, Fortunately, my mother has spent her demise. and so. Mm. But uh, it was one of the last major trips that we were able to take with one another. I'm one of her four sons. Oh, and, uh, I bet you're glad you took advantage of that yes, opportunity. Yes, very much, Good sir. man.
0: Yes. Hey, Philip, thanks for your call. What a great story. And, uh, yes, sir. I'm glad you were able to go to Queen's Day with your mom.
7: Thanks very much. Thank okay, you, Rick. Bye-bye.
0: Tell us about your travel memories and the trip that you'll never forget. Write us at radio at Pat listens to travel with Rick Steves in Sausalito, California, and she tells us she enjoyed actually living in Holland.
4: Not recently. This was in 1970, and I had the amazing opportunity to live there with my husband and our three children in Belgium, and we went out on trips with the three children. They were 10, 8, and 2, and Holland was the most welcoming of any European country to my children.
0: How so? What do you remember that made them so welcoming?
4: Well, they they were very concerned about whether they had enough blankets at night, <laughs> if they were enjoying their breakfast in the morning, and the children now remember the breakfasts of Gouda and Adam Cheese, mm. and they remember the Rijksmuseum. My daughter said that the Rijksmuseum and the Anne Frank House had had a profound effect on her life.
0: Really? As a child?
4: She was 10, yeah. And she became an art historian, so hmm. it was especially gratifying.
0: Oh man, I love that! Some little kernel of an experience then, you know, re- redirects that child's future. My parents took me to Europe, and I remember when I was same time you took your kids to Europe. Uh, it was nineteen sixty nine, my very first trip, and I remember on a Sunday. Uh, we went to a village right on the border of Hungary and you could see communism just over the way and the guards and everything and you could see the traditional village and I always tell the story. I met a, met a man in the tavern after church and all the village gathered, all the different generations and he told stories about you know how World War I started after the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand and Sarajevo, and I was just so wide-eyed and, and that stuck with me forever, and I ended up getting a history degree and writing guidebooks, and it was all and because my <laughs> Well, it was because my parents decided to take me to Europe and, instead of a baseball yeah. camp in the summer, you know, and it's just a yeah. choice that yeah. parents have to what do they want to expose their kids to, and it's just as valuable today as it, as it ever was, I think.
4: Forever, yes.
0: That's right. Hey, Pat, thanks for the call, and, and thanks for the little bit of inspiration for all all the parents uh, wondering if they should take their kids to Europe. Thank you. Chris is on the line in Moreno Valley, California. Chris, thanks for your call.
4: Hi, Rick. Thank you so much. It's lovely to hear you.
0: Oh, good. Thanks.
4: Well, I'm a, a lonely walker who walks all over the country of England on a search for the very best scone that they have in the land. So what I do is go around and I try the scones in every village, every town, every city that I can find. And then I blog about it. So (laughs) what I did was created a blog that talks all about that lovely afternoon tea. And England has the best. What can I say?
0: But within England, when you want to find the best scone, what, what distinguishes a good scone?
4: They have to be warm just out of the oven. They have to be just sweet enough, not too sweet of a good, respectable size and weight. They have to be brushed with an egg wash before you bake them, baked in a hot oven at intervals, and it's best if the place will do it all day long so that they don't reheat Mm. the scones. And last but not least, for them to be served with lashings of jam and either clotted cream or whipped cream. So that is a fabulous scone.
0: Now, what is the difference between clotted cream and whipped cream?
4: Whipped cream, you would just take a thick, heavy cream and whip it up really good with a little bit of vanilla in it and about five tablespoons of sugar for a pint. And that's the way I like scones best, is to have whipped cream. But clotted cream is good, too. It's sort of between butter and whipped cream.
0: But you know from your travels that some scones are better than others.
4: Absolutely. Oh Rick, you just can't believe it. If you go into a tea shop and they serve you a scone that's hard and cold and with hardly any whipped cream. Oh it's it, terrible. You, you want to so, start your
0: day all over.
4: Yeah, you you really do.
0: And and life is and too, too short to eat mediocre scones. <laughs> yep. It's <laughs> not worth it. <laughs> There's something about a good scone. I know what you mean. And and different places get a reputation among locals because locals don't want to put up with uh, disappointing scones.
4: That's true. And and because of that, I wanted to tell you about the very best scone in the country of England that I've ever found. Found in Cornwall, of course. No, wait a minute. Let me sit down.
0: This is really important. So this is the very best scone in all of England, and it's in Cornwall.
4: That's it. In Cornwall, in the town of St. Ives, And the place that I go to now, which has never yet been beaten, is called the Digey Food Room. And it's spelled D-I-G-E-Y, and people can Google it. And it's right on a little cobbled lane there in St. Ives. Wow. And they have other things, too, but the scones are to die for.
0: Now, it it doesn't hurt to be in a beautiful little town to consume the scone.
4: It doesn't hurt at all. And you can sit out on the cobbled lane on a blue table mm. and look at that beautiful town as you're eating your scone.
0: And tell me, take me through the whole process.
4: First of all, I'd walk in and find Josh, who is their baker, and thank him once again for his great scones.
0: His contribution always... to mankind.
4: Oh, yeah. And he thinks of it that way. He really does. That's his thing. That's, that's to his make... calling. That's the way he feels. And several different times he's allowed me to have him be on the blog and his picture, even though he's somewhat shy. So I'll go in an order from him and go out to the little blue table on the cobbled lane. He brings it out himself with all the jam and the cream. And sometimes you will have had to wait a few minutes because he won't just serve you a scone that was done a half an hour ago because by then it might be a little bit cool so he'll wait and put in the scone for you and bake it and then he brings it out and right next to the scone he will have the clotted cream and the strawberry jam and a pot of cream for your tea
0: and you can actually smell the scone because it's still steaming
4: yes absolutely you can nice it's the best
0: do you say scone or scone
4: They would tend to say scone, and when I'm over there, I do so that they'll understand me since I'm the scone lady.
0: But you are evangelical about scones and you want to connect with the American listening audience, so you've Americanized it to say scone.
4: That's exactly right, or they won't know what I'm talking about. Well,
0: that's important. Man, you're making gourmet scones accessible to the masses, and your blog is sconetherapy.blogspot.com. That's correct. Wow. Chris from Moreno Valley, California, Thank you very much, and however they say bon appetit in England to you, okay? <laughs>
4: Thanks a lot.
7: Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac kaplan Wolner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to Tim Underwood Productions in Bend, Oregon, for their help this week. You can listen again whenever you like and find out about our guests in the notes for each week's show. Rick also has an app for your mobile phone with self-guided walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. You'll find it all in the radio pages of ricksteves.com. We'll see you next week for more Travel with Rick Steves.
4: Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey. And Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.